This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, Matt Robeson, Beyond Politics. Before we get to today's show, a quick announcement and a quick thank you. The announcement is that a few months ago on the show, I talked about the fact that according to the website Listen Notes, which tracks podcasts around the world, we had cracked the top two and a half percent and we felt pretty good. Top two and a half percent of all the podcasts on earth. That's That felt great. And we wanted to say thank you to all of our listeners for being with us and for getting us there. And now we're very happy to announce that because of you and your support and your ratings and reviews and downloads and listening, we're now in the top one and a half percent. We got there in just a couple of months. And so that gets me to the thank you part. Thank you. You're doing that and we really appreciate it. And if you want to keep helping us out, please keep hitting that follow button, subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're on. Actually, Apple's done something weird where they they actually want you to hit play on episodes every now and again. So do that too. Also, it, it makes such a difference to leave us a rating and review. Some apps only let you leave a rating, like Spotify. You can only leave a rating. In Apple, what you can do is you can go scroll down to all the way to the bottom of the episode list when you're on Beyond Politics in the Apple Podcast app, you got to do it on the app. And right at the bottom, there's a place to not only leave a five-star rating, but also it says write a review. And if you just take a moment to do that, leave us a sentence or two, that makes a big difference to the algorithms. And with that, want to get to today's show. It's a really fun one. We have Chris Hill, the former host of Motley Fool Money, the number one business investing radio program in America. We're talking about Hollywood and streaming and shows and what the future of entertainment in America is going to be like. This is very much what we like to do on the show because we like to go beyond politics, mostly politics, but we like to go a little bit beyond that. So fun conversation. Thank you again, everyone, so much. And with that, here we go. The rapidly shifting future of streaming, Hollywood, and all things entertainment. Matt Robeson, Beyond Politics. This is an episode, I love doing these. This is where we really embody the name of the show, Beyond Politics, because we do like to talk about business and commerce and entertainment and all things that relate to our American experience. There's no one better to do that with than Chris Hill, deep thinker, frequent guest in the past and longtime host of Motley Fool Money the number one business and investing radio program in America and a spectacularly successful podcast. Chris, welcome back. You're kind of now semi-retired like Don Corleone. How's that treating you? Hopefully I last a little bit longer in my semi-retirement than Don Corleone did because a beloved figure, but he didn't last too much longer after that. But, but yes. Are uh, you scaring small children by putting orange wedges in your mouth? Well, I've always done that. I mean, right. They, More than you used to, I see. And, yeah. any, any man who's seen The Godfather a couple of times has probably tried that at least once. But no, I've it's been a little over six months since I moved on from The Motley Fool, and I'm enjoying semi-retirement, and I'm leaning into the semi part by going on podcasts like yours and starting to work on some projects myself. You, you, you did the audio for a book. You read a book. Yes. Morgan Housel, best-selling author of The Psychology of Money, 
couple of months ago came out with his follow-up book, a book called Same As Ever. And it hit the New York Times business bestseller list. And yes, it's the audiobook is out there. And for anyone who has Spotify Premium, the Spotify Premium members have access to a number of audiobooks, and that's one of them. So they can check that out, kick the tires on it. Awesome. Well, speaking of Spotify, one of the things that I listen to the Bill Simmons pod, and one of the things he does is every few months he brings in his entertainment industry expert to kind of talk about the business of the of behind the entertainment that we all consume, particularly streamers and movies and and how that affects the stuff that we consume. And there's really there's no one better. When we used to do a show every couple of weeks talking about all of this, when we got to I could just tell that it really sang, it really spoke to you when we got to, all right, let's talk about what's going on with Netflix. Let's talk about what's going on with Hollywood and theaters. We talked about it a lot. There's really no one better to do this kind of thing. And and that's really what I wanted to do because there, we hit this weird point at the end of 2023 where there was suddenly a bumper crop of think pieces saying the streaming wars are over. And it really put me in mind of the landscape has changed a lot in the last year. It seems like big open questions about the future of entertainment have started to, I don't know, that get replaced by other questions. Some of them are resolved. Some of them are moving on. So I just wanted to capture what is going on and really what's it going to mean a few years from now for all the stuff we consume. So first of all, am I just, am I crazy by reading all these articles? Are the streaming wars over? I don't think they're over because there's always going to be competition for Netflix. And Netflix is a business that has performed incredibly well, but no business is perfect. Netflix has had their share of stumbles in the past, but in general, it is a very well-run business. But I don't think it's an overstatement to say Netflix is the undisputed champion. I mean, if we were talking about boxing, this Netflix is the, is the streamer that has united all of the belts and is holding all of the belts. Netflix is the king of streaming. And I think... The latest indication of that is the fact that HBO has licensed the first few seasons of Sex and the City to Netflix. Now, as someone who enjoys watching movies and television, that's a story that doesn't really interest me because I'm not the target demographic for Sex and the City. As someone who is interested in business, I find that to be an incredible story because for the longest time, HBO embodied more so than any other studio out there when it came to television it embodied prestige tv hbo put a lot of money into their shows they won a lot of awards and the early track record of netflix produced television shows what we think of as sort of limited series it was sort of a mixed bag so the fact that hbo financially warner brothers discovery is in such a position where they, once upon a time, HBO never would have licensed a show like that because HBO was the home of prestige TV. You want to watch Sex in the City? You got to get HBO. So I think it's just the latest example of how Netflix is the king out there and all the other streamers are fighting for second place. It's really interesting. That was sort of the early strategy of a lot of content owners. I hate the word content. It's so reductive. It's I put this video on YouTube and YouTube wants to call me a content creator. Ugh, content, what, what a bland term. But anyway, there are all these content owners and it was exactly that. The idea was the most important asset you can own as a business 
is the content. And that's why Netflix got into the original content business in the first place. They didn't want to just be the outlet. They didn't want to just kind of own the pipes the way the old cable industry did. They didn't want to just own the theaters the way the theater changed it. They wanted to own the content. They wanted to kind of be vertically integrated and have the whole thing. And these other competitors, the studios that own the content, initially were like, yeah, that's great. More distribution, more money for us. Then they said, well, hold on a second. We want to eat some of their lunch and be in their business. And so they stopped licensing their stuff over to Netflix. And for a long time, that was the nature of the streaming wars. And then there was this turn. Was was it the pandemic? Was it the strike? Was it the writers and actors strike? What was it that led to this changeover? All of the above. I think that, look, we've seen this more broadly in the business world over the last, let's just call it 18 months, where companies came out, not all companies, but a lot of companies came out and said some version of the following. Hey, during the pandemic, we hired too many people. We got over our skis. We're going to have to lay off 5% of our workforce, 10% right. of our workforce, that sort of thing. The same thing happened in Hollywood in terms of we have to green light as many series as possible. We have to spend whatever we need to get these movie producers to get these showrunners working for us and produce as much as possible. And we've really seen over the last, really 2023, I think in a big way, a lot of studios, Netflix and Apple included, and I'll get back to Apple in a second, pumping the brakes and saying, you know what, we're going to have to pull back on how much we're spending here because the money that they were getting from movie theaters I mean, that was just, that was the golden ticket. That was the financial engine for so many studios. And once that went away, the assumption of, well, we'll just, we'll put everything on streaming and that'll be that. No, the economics of streaming are not as attractive as the economics of a summer blockbuster. Mm. They just aren't. So I think when you think about Apple, as big as that company is, as much money as Apple has, cash on the balance sheet. It has been said about Apple for 15 years. Well, they could do X. They could go into this business. I saw a story the other day about the Apple car, which has been a story that's been going on for at least a decade. And now it's, no, really, Apple is serious about making a car, but now they're looking at 2028 instead of 2026. But the fact that Apple, with all this cash, has pumped the brakes on what they're spending on series that, and movies that they are themselves producing as much as anything, that tells you about the economic environment in Hollywood. It's such a remarkable turnaround, though, in even a year. We see all these headlines in 2023 basically suggesting Netflix is the winner. They won the streaming wars. They've got 250 million subscribers. Amazon is next. They have about 200 million. But a lot of that is because people are prime members and it's just kind of a throw in. And then you've got Disney Plus, which has 150 million, which is great, but lags significantly all the others are kind of behind that. So it's just, it's amazing to me that we reach this point in 2023 where it's, yep, as you say, unified the belts, Netflix has come out on top. The other companies are essentially saying uncle, they're crying uncle by, by saying, you know what, we need to do a cash grab here. We're going to sell you NBC and Universal. Instead of keeping suits on Peacock, we're going to sell it to Netflix for 25 to 50 million. We're not exactly sure. 
Suits becomes a runaway hit over the summer of 2023, just like absolutely takes off recycled content that was just in the library. And it's kind of a win-win. These other companies are saying, you know what? We'd rather just do the cash grab. We'd rather get the cash up front and not own the asset. And Netflix is saying, yeah, we'll take the asset. That's great. It's just, it's a remarkable thing considering that it was just 2022 when Netflix reported its first loss in subscribers in a decade and its market value crashed and they had to introduce an ad-based plan as like a lower tier and somehow it all kind of turned around even with this interruption of the actor strike it's just it's sort of a remarkable thing it is a remarkable thing and you look at netflix stock now they reported earnings earlier this week they just added 13 million net subscribers the stock is at a two-year high it is still lower than where it was in the pandemic, but it has bounced back very nicely. And you mentioned the ad tier. I mean, that is something that, uh, let me go off of streaming for just one moment. Sure. And talk about a platform formerly known as Twitter. And for whatever one, whatever anyone thinks about Twitter, whatever anyone thinks about Elon Musk, the thing that I'm surprised does not get more mention mm. in terms of the business of Twitter or X, as it is now called, is that's a platform that even before Elon Musk bought it was not delivering for advertisers. You look at a platform like Facebook and all of the PR problems that business has faced over the past decade in terms of the 2016 election, in terms of any number of issues. And despite the headline risk, that's a business that is held up for one reason. It delivers for advertisers. And as long as a company that is making money from advertising is delivering results for the people who are advertising on that platform, they're going to be in good shape. To bring it back to Netflix, I thought it was very smart of Netflix to partner with Microsoft when they were looking to launch their ad platform because it was, among other things, a signal that Netflix wasn't trying to do everything themselves, and they understood the stakes. They knew, we got to get this right. We got to get this right for the people who subscribe to our service. We have to get this right for the advertisers. And if we blow this, it's a massive setback. Amazon has very quietly built a very profitable advertising business online over the past, call it eight to 10 years. And they're looking to do that now more so with Amazon Prime. And I wouldn't, I would rather be Amazon and Apple just because of their alternative revenue sources. I think they're probably in better financial shape because of that diversification than something like Peacock, which is completely in the content business. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Let me take you out of your business analyst brain and put you into your, you just to watch movies and great shows brain. 
Is this good? Are, are these changes good for people like you? I mean, I'm kind of a movie guy myself. I'm such a nerd. I'm such a nerd that in high school, I actually went to summer school because we had an arts requirement in order to graduate from high school. I was not going to meet it. I was, I'm so deficient in the arts that I was in danger of not graduating from high school. So I went to summer school and I took history of film. I was so inspired by that experience that I started a film criticism magazine at my high school. So that's what you're dealing with here, Chris. <laughs> I, but is all of this good? There was sort of this, it's kind of a, like a trade term these days, right? There was peak streaming about four or five years ago, where it seemed like for Netflix, I mean, South Park even made a joke about this. It's like, you'd call up Netflix and they'd say, hi, Netflix, you're greenlit. What would you like? And it's like, there were just so many shows. So, and it, they seem to be in a volume content business. And then there was discussion of the fact that when we had the writer's strike, there had been 600 scripted shows on streamers and broadcast in 2022. And maybe that was too much. Maybe that was just too much. You're dividing the pie into so many audience niches. People can't possibly consume that much. Maybe a little less would be good. Maybe a little rationalization would be good. So just from the standpoint of people who, you know, I, I kind of like movies, are these changes good? I think they are just from the standpoint of, like you, I enjoy watching movies. I enjoy watching good television shows. And there are a lot of options out there. And so it's hard to argue from the customer side. It's hard to argue, well, there's nothing to watch. I think you're right. I think collectively the studios realize, wow, we're producing a lot of shows and that's probably more than we need to be. And I think that as you said, there's, there's only so many hours in the day. There's only so many shows people can watch. I am someone who believes that good content always finds an audience. It may take a little while. I think that's the core. That's the core idea behind my podcast. Exactly. Just keep hammering away. It's going to find the audience slowly, right. but surely. But I television, I think it is a perfect example of this just because it's littered with examples of great and not just great, but historically great, all-time great shows that got off to a rocky start and were in danger of being canceled. Seinfeld and Cheers, just right. if you're looking at sitcoms. Breaking Bad is widely regarded as one of the best dramas of the last 25 years. It makes everybody shortlist. That was a show that was in danger of being canceled every off-season after seasons one, two, three, and four. It wasn't until it really took hold, ironically enough, on Netflix that the the network AMC decided, oh, wait, this actually does have an audience. They started to see a positive effect on their numbers, on their channel. So good content will always find a home. But I think that it's, it is that dance that the studios have to do with the creators to say, look, here's how much we're willing to pay for this. And if you can find someone else who's going to pay you more to make this movie or make this TV show, when you and I were chatting the other day, I think I mentioned this, that Netflix, among other things, established pretty early on, it wanted to be known as a place, as a home for stand-up comedy. That was a place that HBO, uh, that was a title HBO held for a number of years, and Netflix clearly decided, no, we want to do that. We want to have a lot of stand-up comedy specials. And if you're a fan of stand-up comedy like I am, there are no shortage of shows, uh, stand-up specials that you can watch. But even Netflix is gotten into the habit of saying no to some comedians who have 
on their own, film their specials that go to Netflix and they're like, here, and Netflix is, nah, I don't think so. Even it for isn't... Netflix, there is a limit. Well, it is interesting, right? It is interesting, the interaction between consumer behavior and business behavior and how they kind of inform one another in a feedback loop. You and I grew up at a time where, you know, first of all, broadcast television was dominant and theater going was dominant. And when it came to television, you'd kind of ask yourself, what's on? And that, you know, what's on right now? And then you eventually we gained the capability like cavemen inventing writing we eventually gained the capability to record things. Even then, though, it was so ingrained in kind of like our training as viewers that, I mean, Bill Simmons has got a whole show about movies called The Rewatchables, which is based on the experience of you had cable television because that's just what you did and movies would be on. And you'd like whenever it was your time to, oh, I'm going to watch something, you'd, you'd say, what's on? And then you'd say, oh, they're halfway through Shawshank. Well. I'm going to pick up, I'm going to pick up on this scene. I'm in for 15 minutes. That's the whole thing. And what seemed to have interrupted that behavior, what the streamers were trying to do when streaming kind of like really broke out about 10 years ago was train us to do a whole different thing, which was to be selective. And now it seems like Netflix has kind of gone full circle with their top 10 trending bar, their whole redesign of the homepage. Because now a lot of the consumer behavior, this seems to be what what powered suits was kind of this feedback loop of people go to Netflix, they look at what's trending, they look at what's popular in the top 10, and they sort of want to be back in the Cheers-esque water cooler conversation of this is what people are watching, this is what people are talking about, I'm going to watch this because it seems to be popular. It's like popularity begets its own feedback of popularity. It's weird to, I don't know, pick up on any that you want, but it's weird to me that in a way we've kind of gone full circle with the consumer feedback, the behavioral feedback loop with the companies. Yes, and we are continuing on that circle to go back to the cable bundle. It'll just be the streaming bundle. I mean, Disney, which owns ESPN and owns Hulu, has been pushing that strategy for years now to some measure of success. But I think that that's how they resolved the standoff with Charter was that Charter agreed to bundle Disney Plus with the cable offering. Yes, but also like you you can subscribe in my home I subscribe to Disney Plus. If I wanted to, I could subscribe to ESPN Plus and Hulu and sort of do that whole thing. We are absolute make no mistake, we're absolutely headed in that direction. And I think that people are just going to have to make choices because one of the things that is also over just like the streaming war is over as we started this conversation, here's what else is over inexpensive streaming services. I mean, when mm. Disney Plus launched, they launched it at a price point that if you paid for the full 12 months, you were basically getting it for five bucks a month. Same with Apple Plus. And they're continuing to raise that price. Same for Netflix. I mean, Netflix is going to get rid of what is essentially their lowest priced option. And so the idea of, well, I'll just subscribe to all the services because they're inexpensive. Well, they're not so inexpensive anymore. And I think people have to start making some hard choices. Is Since you brought up the cable bundle, is the cable bundle business model dead or is it going to limp along on the inertia of the fact that old ass people like me, I won't include you in this, even though technically you are older than I am. Yeah, you can um, include me. <laughs> okay, old ass people like us just by force of habit 
I've still got cable. I've still got the bundle. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Well, I mean, there's a slice of it that's worth it, which is live sports. We have to talk about the sports aspect. But at the peak of traditional cable, there were more than 100 million Americans paying for the bundle. And now at a rate of about 5 million a year, the cable companies are losing those people. That's a pretty good rate of attrition. So where is that going? I think it's continuing in that direction, and I think it will continue to limp along. It is a it is a service that still millions of people are paying for. Is it just force of habit, or is it because there's sports? I think it's both. I think it's sports. It's it's live news. I I think that matters particularly to older Americans, and yeah, there's the habit aspect to it as well. And so that's a powerful that's a powerful the power of habit is incredibly powerful. So I think that's going to continue for years to come. The death of, of ESPN has been predicted for so many years. And I saw a story the other day like, wow, no, it really looks like ESPN is dead. I'm like, okay. Meanwhile, it will continue to make money for Disney and its shareholders. Your, at least one of your kids is fully launched. Your kids, they don't get cable, right? Unless it's for internet. Correct. They don't watch cable. None of them do. And none of them... <laughs> If they're ever home and we're watching traditional television, it's a jarring thing when the commercials come on. Because while there are commercials on streaming services, increasingly, they are present. They are there are more of them on broadcasting cable television. There's not a little clock in the corner that tells you the viewer this is how many more minutes this commercial is going to be on, like you get on things like Hulu and that sort of thing. So, so yeah. But until then. It's just going to keep plugging along. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I was watching something on Peacock with my 12-year-old, and we had to endure three minutes of ad before an uninterrupted airing of the rest of our movie. She was outraged. I thought someone had committed a constitutional violation in line with an insurrection, which also has happened in America recently. And uh, I mean, just... Again, it kind of goes to the training of the behavior of what people are going to expect. I just can't imagine the thing that keeps me, I think what keeps me as a cable subscriber is inertia. And because they do make it such a pain in the ass to figure out. And also, like, I got to get my Celtics games and they still have a hammerlock on that. But the more migrates to the streamers, and we're seeing this with football, like football's the skinny edge of the wedge. And Netflix just went, they just went big on WWE too, right? $5 billion in Netflix shelled out for WWE, and it's a large sum of money, but it really shouldn't be all that surprising when you think about how Netflix has been investing in documentary, documentary series around things like F1 racing, tennis, the quarterback series that they did. Captains of the World, the World Cup thing is just spectacular. Yeah. It's great. And so uh, they're being very smart and very strategic about how they are going after sort of their entry into sports. But I would say by the same token that I think both, I think Amazon has been very strategic in terms of how they got into the NFL. And I think Max is doing a good job of incorporating because Max owns, Warner Brothers Discovery owns Max, also owns um, TNT. And so those NBA NBA games get filtered into the Mac streaming platform very seamlessly. 
I was watching when, last night. I was like, what am I going to watch? I turn on, I open up Max, and the first thing that's presented to me is the Boston Celtics are playing the Miami Heat. Great, let's go. So I think, and you did that through Max. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing that is ultimately going to kill cable for me is when I can get the key sports stuff that I want. I'm on a streak where I, I don't think I've missed a Celtics game in something like four or five years. And so when I can get that, I'm out. There's literally no point. Meanwhile, I've got friends telling me, I've done this on the show, just saying, look, what you got to do is it's like Tetris. When you screw up, just start a new base. So what you got to do is just cancel everything and start reassembling all your bundles from scratch and decide with great intention what it is you want to do. Let's talk about the movie side of this for a second. I saw a statistic the other day that the average length of time between cuts in, in when, when you're watching something in a movie has gone from eight seconds down to four seconds. The very nature of what we're watching has changed. And I have to say that since I've started doing this pod on video, you know, we have the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. I do video commentaries. We put the pod up there. With the pod, I just let it run for the most part. But when I'm doing video, when I'm constructing a new piece of video myself, there's all this kind of like getting started stuff that you can watch that'll say, oh, best practice, do a cut of some kind every eight seconds. I'm down to four seconds myself because that's what I think just is visually appealing. What I'm beginning to wonder is what about the model where live sports was sort of considered the killer app for cable, the movie studios are, they're still producing stuff that's vastly different than it was 10, 20 years ago. But I mean, is the kind of content that the long form content that we grew up with and that we were getting as, as recently as a decade ago, is that going to survive into the future? I mean, even now, NBA stuff, people your kid's age, they don't sit down and watch a game. They'll, they'll pick up a, a TikTok about it. They'll pick up a highlights reel on YouTube. What, what are, is there thinking out there about what the studios are going to do with our kind of decreased attention spans? I mean, I think that you've already touched on sort of what is the broad trend, and that's not all that surprising. There's always going to be creative people who will go against the grain. There are once upon a time, it was going against the grain to have that many cuts. I mean, if you go back 40 years or so, there are some movies that fit very nicely, very neatly in terms of their pacing today. But at the time, they, they seemed frenetic. And I think that you're going to see the, the opposite of that now. You just look at the Academy Awards nominations came out recently, a movie like Killers of the Flower Moon, Martin Scorsese. At some point, Martin Scorsese will no longer be with us. But there will always be filmmakers who will have the ability to say, no, I'm going to make this movie. It's going to be three hours. And that's just how long it's going to be. It's going to be as long as I need it to be. And if it's good, I always think of the, the immortal Roger Ebert line, no good movie is ever long enough. No bad movie is ever short enough. As long as it's good, people will hang in there. We talked a lot about a year and a half ago about movies, not movie studios, about theaters, about theater chains. And were they going to survive the pandemic? What about the whole strategy of releasing movies in theaters? It was a very weird thing when Netflix put out Glass Onion. They released it in theaters for a week. 
to great success. And then they pulled it. And I guess that was a tease because they wanted word of mouth and then people to, to rush to streaming. How Since we last checked in about this, how is the movie theater and the release to movie theater strategy going? And is there a future in it? There's absolutely a future in it. And I think as much as any single person, Tom Cruise gets the credit for Top Gun Maverick and sort of how that. And also for Scientology. Yeah. And also just more recently, you look at Barbie, you look at Oppenheimer. I mean, those are movies that did so well at the box office. And I think that's sort of the new standard. That's the new goal that that studios are looking for. What's our Barbie? What's our Oppenheimer? What, what's going to be the movie that's really going to bring people into the theaters? And it's, again, it's very done well, done correctly. It's incredibly profitable for all involved. So I shouldn't say all involved because I think that's part of why we just had the writer's strike. But it is incredibly profitable. I think, I think there's always going to be that. I'm sort of waiting for more theater owners to basically do the thing that is, I see it in Los Angeles, I see it in New York City, and ironically, I see it a hundred miles south of where I am. I see it in Richmond, Virginia, but I don't see it where I live in the Washington, D.C. area. And that is essentially vintage movie houses that are showing, they're not showing whatever is in the theater right now. They're not quote unquote first run movies. They're showing classics. They're doing mm -hmm. theme weeks. They're doing Mafia Month. So we're going to have The Godfather for two nights. Then the next two nights, we're going to have The Godfather Part 2. Maybe we'll throw The Godfather Part 3 in there for one night. Casino, Goodfellas. That kind of, I think, though, I think back to years ago, this may have been a decade ago, Matt, when Gene Wilder passed away. And there were a, a number of theater chains that decided to have a limited run sort of in honor of Gene Wilder they had one weekend where they showed Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein in the theater. And I'd seen both those movies countless times, never on the big screen. I went by myself to go see Blazing Saddles in the theater on the big screen. The theater was packed. It was mm. absolutely jammed packed. And I think that that opportunity is out there. I don't know. If it's out there on a mass scale, I don't know if like a Regal Cinema or an AMC theater can pull that off. I'd love to see them try, but I think that is something that could absolutely work well. It is interesting that more theaters aren't experimenting with that kind of thing. My mother, who's in New York City, goes to movie theaters regularly to watch HD opera. But first of all, New York City, the best place in the world to be a retiree. It's amazing. My mother has the most active, interesting social life of anyone I know. It's incredible. She goes to museums, culture, political discussion groups, walking groups. I, I'm envious and I'm 50. But anyway, this is a use case for movie theaters where it, this makes entire sense to me. Like it's so expensive to go. She could go to the Met. She could. She lives like two miles from it. She could go there. Or you could go to an HD theater and like chill with your friends and it's just as good an experience, if not better. I'm surprised that there isn't more kind of tinkering around with that kind of thing, especially because your kids are slightly older than mine. I wonder if they've had the experience of watching a good comedy in a movie theater. Maybe they're old enough that they have. My kids have not. And it is palpably different. I've, as I've been kind of exploring new movies with my, it's interesting to watch a comedy 
when there's not a group of people around you also laughing, like, and she's picked up now there's older shows that occasionally they'll be on, like the Cosby show will be on. It's so jarring to hear a laugh track these days, like for young ears, it's what the hell is this? It's horrible. You, you almost can't bear it, but we've sort of lost the idea of it's also helpful as a psychological cue. You hear other people laughing. It's a very different experience. And so I would totally go see like even movies that are not that old. I'd go see Blades of Glory in a movie theater just for having the experience of other people laughing around me. And I think my kids would enjoy the comedies that I like better if they could go see them in a theater where other people are laughing. I'm just I'm surprised that there's not more of that. I would argue that the Cosby show is jarring for reasons other than the laugh track. But anyway, <laughs> you're um, not wrong. No, I think I agree with that. And look, we are at our core as human beings, we are social creatures. And so that manifests itself in the entertainment industry, in movie theaters, in actual theaters, in concerts, which I think will always be happening. And it also happens with, with a phenomenon like suits, because we don't want to just watch good shows and movies we want to talk to our friends about them and when you are when you have a show that you love I, I would say over the holidays the show for me and sort of friends of a similar age that show was slow horses on apple plus right and the new season was out and it's six episodes and it's a brilliant show and it, it's the sort of thing where you're like that's a like any great piece of entertainment you find yourself in conversations with friends where if they haven't seen it, you're just imploring them to see it. Right. Because you want to talk about it. At Christmas, one of my wife's aunts was imploring me to watch Monarch, Legacy of Monsters. First of all, I did not peg this aunt as a Godzilla fan. I have kind of like a sneaky Godzilla. Th I really like Godzilla. Every time Godzilla fights King Kong, it's like always rooting for Godzilla. But anyway... Great show, but it's because it's it's a fun thing to talk about. And I, I'll give you what I want to close out by just thinking forward a little bit. Like, what are the next five years look like? Where are we going to be in 2020? Oh, my gosh, 2029. One thing that I've kind of picked up on, I'm you're in a far better position than me to try to make predictions. Over the summer, my wife and I watched Extraordinary Attorney Wu on Netflix and I was struck in thinking a little bit ahead to, you know, this discussion by the fact that Netflix's strategy seems to be original content as a key to bringing an international audience, that they're producing more original stuff and more original stuff in other countries and in other languages that is then repurposed for the U.S. audience. They're finding 70% of their growth is international. And we watched Extraordinary Attorney Wu. We watched Fauda, the Israeli show. And I, my not very insightful prediction is that people streaming content, especially on Netflix in five years, will increasingly be international IP, that there will be more shows originally produced and maybe kind of test driven in other markets, and then very intentionally pushed to the US market. And you're going to see for us, part of the enjoyment of the South Korean show was it kind of gave you a slice of life and culture in South Korea. And that was kind of cool. And we enjoyed that. That's a mild prediction, a, a very mild one. What do you got? 
I think that prediction will come true as long as that's where the money is. I mean, that's the one thing you can depend on is that businesses are going to go where the money is. And by that, I mean the reason so many films in America have been filmed in the state of Georgia over the past decade is because the state of Georgia decided we're going to make it undeniably attractive from a financial standpoint for movie studios to come here. We're going to give them tax breaks galore and we will reap the benefits in terms of tourism and hotels and restaurants and that sort of thing. But we are going to make it so attractive for them. So I think that to your point about the international shows over the next five years, yeah, as long as it's financially attractive to make those shows and be in those countries, yeah, I think that's likely to come true as long as it continues to be financially attractive. I think five years from now is going to look pretty similar to what we have right now. While Netflix is the leading streamer and will probably be the leading streamer in five years, barring something pretty remarkable, Apple TV is not going anywhere. Disney Plus, these other things are not going anywhere because the content is what is going to dictate the smaller players and sort of their viability. Um, it's not going to surprise me if there's some amount of consolidation, if Peacock gets sold to someone else or someone just ponies up the money for that, uh, all that comes with Peacock. But I think it's going to look a lot like what we have now. And I, again, for people who enjoy watching movies and television, the choices are going to be there. Chris Hill, what else you got coming up? You've got a, you've got projects cooking. So anything we should look out for from you? Or we'll just have to have you back here. Uh, when I have something to share, I will absolutely share it with you if you have me back on the show. All right. We have we have dibs. All right. Chris Hill, longtime host of Botley Fool Money. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Matt. Thanks.